You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. We are on today with Mark Allen, a repeat guest. He was one of our very first guests in early 2019 when we started the podcast. He's former music critic for the Indianapolis Star and uh, impresario at Butler University who retired and just recently spent several months in New Zealand, but he's back. The reason we're talking to Mark today, just besides the fact that we've missed him for the past six months, is he has an interesting archive of interviews he's done with famous musicians we talked a little bit, a lot actually, about his career when he came on the podcast last year. We want to continue this conversation and discuss the archive of interviews that are now available for people to listen to. Mark, thank you very much, sir. Thanks for having me again, Robert. And I will apologize in advance to the audience for the multiple Seinfeld references throughout this podcast. as Mark and I are pretty addicted. Yeah, I've just been, uh, you know, I got Hulu when I came back, and so I've been watching Seinfeld. What's uh, the last one regularly. you watched? I uh, just watched uh, The Pledge Drive. So, <laughs> uh, and it's fun to see them uncut. You know, I, I generally when I watch them, I just watch them on TBS, so there's always a minute or two cut out, and it's the kids and I watched uh, The English Patient last night. So mm-hmm. in the uh, words of uh, Mandelbaum, it's go time. That's right. Let's go. We talked a little bit uh, about your previous podcast. Uh, so to, just to quickly refresh, uh, Mark was born in New York and lived there uh, most of his life and uh, developed an early interest in music and journalism. And Mark, why don't you take it from there? Just give us a minute, refresh on your background and how you ended up in Indianapolis. Well, I actually spent way more time in Indianapolis than I have in New York at this point. But um, yeah, I went to college in Boston, moved around for newspaper jobs, came to the Star in 1988, thought I'd be here two years. It's now, what is it, 32 years. So, uh, you know, Indianapolis is my home. And uh, I, w- I was the music critic at the Star from 1990 to 98, but I kind of aged out of it, you know. I mean, I got to be 
39 years old and, and uh, had a daughter, a young daughter, and uh, it just got to be too much to go to, you know, I'd go to about 80 concerts a year. And uh, so working wow. that many nights and uh, just made it difficult. So uh, I aged out. I was actually, I, I, I was at a Rage Against the Machine concert. And, uh, Good band. You know, the, yeah, if you know the seating area at Deer Creek or Ruoff, as it's now called, um, I used to sit in the front row of Section F, the row right behind the soundboard, which was great. You'd get the best sound and you'd have an unimpeded view. And during the Rage Against the Machine concert, a lot of kids came rushing down and they stood in front of me in this area because we had a lot of leg room in that row. And uh, so they just stood there and I'm like, hey, guys, you know, I'm, I'm trying to watch this. And one of the kids turned around to me and he said, out of the way, old man. And I thought, old? I'm 39. I'm not old. But I really was. And so it was time to get out. And Dave Lindquist took over and has been doing it ever since. And we've reached out. Dave's agreed to come on the podcast. We just need to get a get a date and a time. Obviously, with the current uh, conditions and social distancing and the need to do everything by phone, uh, we have to make some uh, allowances and we're very grateful for you to uh, spend some of your time. Um, let's talk just quickly about the, the reason for the tape archive and to put your interviews up on the net and uh, do the sort of this podcast thing that you've, you've done so well, because these interviews, I've listened to several of them and snippets of others, and we're going to talk about individual ones. But tell us a little bit about the genesis of the project. So about five years ago, probably longer, but it seems like it's at least five, my friend Alan Barry came to me and he said, you have all your interview tapes. Let's make them into a podcast. And I did what I usually do, which is nothing. And, um, <laughs> and, and then uh, Alan came back to me with the idea again last year, and I said, all right, you know, if you want to do it, it's fine. I mean, I'll give you the tapes. And I gave him, you know, I probably had three or 400 interview tapes. I gave those to him and I gave him all the mail that I got through the years because I saved every letter that anybody ever wrote to me. And I'd say that the folder is about eight inches thick of, you know, letters that, that uh, readers sent to me. So I, I gave him that, and I gave him, you know, memorabilia and all this, and he's done an amazing job just putting it together into a podcast. So basically, he goes through my interviews and uh, cuts out a lot of my uhs and ahs and, and uh, extraneous things, and there occasionally are things that I don't want people to hear. Um, but generally, you know, he does that. He does all the... Um, uh, the production work, and you can see the podcast. It's called The Tapes Archive, and uh, so you can find it at thetapesarchive.com, uh, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and basically anywhere where you get your podcasts. So it's basically it's my old interview tapes, but um, cleaned up by Alan and, uh, and made to look a lot better than I would have done it, that's for sure. That sounds uh, pretty familiar, doesn't it, Spangle? 
who cleans up all of my errors on the podcast. You said there were some things that you didn't want in there. What would be, now obviously you wouldn't want to give me specific examples, but just like categories of examples that you, stuff you've had excised. Um, discussion of, uh, let's see, discussion of past drug use, um, and, uh, and 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 uh, the use of the N word um, would be two things that uh, have been excised from a couple of interviews. Actually, the drug use one I take back because that that interview is not going to air. I mean, it was uh, a discussion with somebody nobody would want to hear from. Uh, but the the N word, uh, you know, it's interesting. In the nineties, I mean, I was this was you know these interviews. Generally, although not all, took place from 1990 to 1998. Um, the, you know, the, the things you could say that would be acceptable, or at least understandable, in 1990 to 1998, can get you in an awful lot of trouble in 2020. And I didn't want um, people I interviewed, you know, 20 or 25 years ago sure. to be in trouble using um, words that they, you know, they would definitely not use today. Were all these interviews part of your job duties at the star? So in other words, they, they called you to promote a particular concert or event because some of the names and when people get on the tape, the tape tapes, archive.com. Tape archive they will see it's not only a Rick James, but it's also a Joan Rivers. And it's not just uh, an Ian Anderson. It's also Bill Maher. So was it easy for you to to put these interviews together because they're promoting something, so they're reaching out to you? Yeah, I mean, generally what happens is uh, publicists call and they say, so-and-so is coming through town. Would you like to talk to them? And we would write preview stories based on the, the interviews. So, yeah, I mean, it was fairly easy to, to do all these things, yeah. Were there people who you wanted to talk to when they came through town who wouldn't talk to you? And rock stars oh, sure. are notoriously snotty, for lack of a better term. Well, I mean, you know, some of them are just so big, they don't have to talk to you. I mean, you know, sure, I would have loved to have talked to Elton John, Eric Clapton, Paul Simon. I actually was supposed to talk to Paul Simon once, and he didn't call. And I sat by the phone all afternoon waiting <laughs> for the call. Um, you know, and I had some other, you know, people would keep you waiting. I mean, it, it wasn't a big, it's not a big deal to wait. And sometimes weird things would happen. Like, do you remember the singer Jewel? Yeah, from Alaska, right? Yeah, uh, yeah I think she was, yeah. Anyway, she was supposed to call, didn't call, and ended up for some reason calling me at one in the morning and woke me up and said, said, I've got a message from my manager saying to call you right away. I'm like, yeah, but that was about eight hours ago. And well, uh, anyway, 9 we did PM in Alaska. But, yeah, that's right. Probably so. Did you tell Martha um, it was Jake from State Farm? <laughs> I wish I had, that, that, that would predate Jake from State Farm, but, uh, but Martha was pretty upset. She's like, why is she calling you at 1 o'clock in the morning? 
it's okay, we'll deal with it. And we had a nice interview. I mean, I don't know that that'll ever make the podcast, but it's, um, you know, it was, it's one of those things that I remember. For those of who, those of you who do not know Mark personally, Martha is his wife of how many years? 35. 35. Wonderful, wonderful couple with great kids. So I remember, you know, you mentioned about people being too big. I remember when Van Halen 3 came out and the, the album didn't do well and the concert tour wasn't doing well and listening, it might've been on Bob and Tom or, or maybe uh, Q95 in the afternoon with Mad Dog Matus hearing an interview with Alex Van Halen. And I remember thinking, mm-hmm. oh my God, they must not be able to sell tickets. Did some of these bigger groups or personalities who were not having a successful tour or album talk to you when ordinarily they wouldn't have? Oh, yeah. I mean, there were definitely situations like that. I mean, there's a Billy Joel interview on the podcast. That was, I think, our second or third episode. And, you know, Billy Joel was fairly huge, but at the time he was going through some some you know troubles i guess financial troubles and other things like that and you wouldn't expect to get a guy like that on the phone and and you know i had a very nice i mean i think that's one of the best interviews i've ever done actually um it's just a great conversation he's just a super interesting guy and fun to talk to and uh very self-effacing um i'm trying to think of people you wouldn't normally get um, well, I'm looking in 1990, it's, it's Neil Parrott from Rush. Yeah. Yeah. That was fairly standard. I mean, I talked to Neil three times and, um, and another guy who was great, but I mean, uh, it, they just considered that part of their duty, which was to promote their band. And so they would, you know, they'd be happy to call him. And Neil was, you know, just a great conversationalist. I, I love every talk that I ever had with him. He actually made me a Rush fan because I really wasn't <laughs> when I first, when I first, the first time I was going to talk to him and, um, and I, I listened to him talking and I, and I thought this guy is so smart and so interesting. What am I missing in the music? And I went back and said, okay, all right. He convinced me. The other, the other person who was like that was Peter Buck of REM. I did not like REM uh, at the time and interviewed him and thought, I love this guy. This guy's fantastic. And then went back and listened to REM music and said, okay, you know, I'm just being silly. This is actually really good. <laughs> okay, so, so obviously I'm looking at your website, thetapesarchive.com, and... Neil Peart is 1990. We all know he recently passed away. Um, you were not a fan of Rush during the 2112 Permanent Waves moving pictures era? You're kidding. No, I really missed it. I just totally missed it. For someone who loves progressive rock and amazing musicians and instrumentality, explain to me how you missed it. I'm mystified. Uh, I think... Rush was maybe not considered cool or something. I mean, I don't know. I don't. I, I, I I'm kind of racking my brain trying to remember what the situations were, but I just think Rush was 
was not highly thought of when they first started, and so I didn't pay a ton of attention to them after that. So I missed all that stuff and had to go back and, uh, you know, and relearn it later. We're a non-judgmental podcast, Mark, so we'll, <laughs> we forgive you. The very first tape uh, or podcast you post interview after your introduction is with George Carlin. And he must have been someone, whether it was Class Clown or his HBO specials, that you listened to, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you listened to growing up. You're a Absolutely. child of the 70s. Mm-hmm. And what was it like to interview him? Were you just, I mean, is it one of those things where it's like, I can't believe I'm getting ready to have a private conversation with George Carlin? No, and I have to tell you, the only time, uh, the only podcast, one of those interviews where I was ever nervous was Frank Zappa, because Frank Zappa is my hero, one of my heroes, and um, and that was a little unnerving because, you know, Frank, he, he doesn't suffer fools gladly, and sometimes I'm a fool, so uh, <laughs> I, 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 you know, the, the thing is, like, you're sitting there and going, don't slip up, don't slip up. Uh, but every, uh, you know, all the other conversations, I mean, it's like I'm talking to you, you know, it's a famous person on the other end of the line, but I don't feel, I never felt intimidated or, um, you know, that I, that I couldn't be myself. And sometimes, you know, being myself turned out to be good and sometimes it turned out to be the wrong thing. And, you know, you just, uh, <laughs> um, uh, you know, because like you would joke around with somebody who was not in the mood to joke around. Um, well, I was going to ask you asking, about that. I remember asking uh, John Bon Jovi about uh, a joke that uh, that Dennis Leary made on Saturday Night Live, where he said, "Why couldn't it be John Bon Jovi in the helicopter instead of Stevie Ray Vaughan?" And <laughs> and I, you know, I just wanted to know what he thought of that, and he didn't want to hear that, and he just, you know, I mean. We we went on and we had a decent conversation and John Bon Jovi actually turned out to be pretty nice but um, but you know that was an un- a stupid and uncomfortable way to start a conversation that was that was your first that. question <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> which shows you I learned better you know later that you know save the nasty questions till the end so. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Mark Allen, former music critic for the Indianapolis Star, world traveler, and someone who is a good friend to many of us and has a terrific website, thetapesarchive.com, thetapesarchive.com, which are posted his interviews with celebrities and famous folks who've come through Indianapolis for one reason or another. Most are musicians, but not solely musicians. Uh, we just asked him about uh, George Carlin, who was a, for those of you who don't remember him, was a 70s and 80s, especially a 
groundbreaking uh, comedy icon who would quite frankly be having a field day in 2020. <laughs> yeah. Um, and George Carlin, I mean, people should know him if they don't. He was considered one of the three greatest stand-up comics of all time. So, Who are the other uh, two in your opinion? Uh, well, it wasn't my opinion. I mean, this is, this is what people voted, but I think, uh, I think the other ones were, uh, oh man, was it Chris Rock and, um, and, uh, Lenny Bruce? I'm trying to remember. I'm, you know what? That's, uh, flipping my mind. If Rodney Dangerfield isn't on that list, then the list is. Oh, he's, he's right up there, but yeah. Well, you you interviewed another comedian who's uh, she's posted on the website, and that's Joan Rivers. Yeah. What was it like to talk to Joan Rivers? It's nineteen ninety. She was probably on her way on her way to come back, if my memory serves, from the uh, being put on ice by Johnny Carson for starting her own talk show. And she was really starting to take off right around that time period on the E channel, along with her daughter. Was she nice? Was she gracious? Funny? She was incredibly gracious and very funny. And I think, um, you know, she was always very candid. And, um, you know, there's a quote in there. She says, I always say what I think, whether it's, you know, politically correct or not. Like when I was talking about Elizabeth Taylor and saying she was fat. She was fat. (laughs) That's what Joan Rivers said, and it's just it's just so funny, and it, it you know it, sometimes it was fun to be on the other end with comedians who would just some of sometimes they would do their act or a part of their act or they would get into a riff where they really um, liked where it was going, and I'm a pretty good audience, but um, like I remember Tracy Morgan. Um, we had a pretty contentious beginning of the conversation. Um, and then contentious he said, how? um, I have a friend who worked for Tracy Morgan and he told me that uh, something about Tracy Morgan, that Tracy Morgan wasn't a very good reader and, um, uh, that, that in some way it hooked into his character on 30 Rock. And Tracy Morgan, he just denied it up and down. And, um, and he, he seemed a little, I mean, unless he was acting, he seemed a little angry about it. Anyway, you know, we kind of got off, um, on the wrong foot. And then we were going along and, you know, things kind of leveled off. And then he went on this riff that I've seen him do a, a version of in, in other places, but I had never seen it before where he started telling me that his father was Tony Dorsett and his mother was uh, Uhuru from Star Trek. <laughs> and he just, and this thing just went off and it was crazy. And I was dying. I mean, I was laughing as hard as I've ever laughed. So, you know, that was really fun to, uh, to, to be on the other end of. Um, but Joan Rivers, I, I love talking to her. I mean, I, I think I talked to her a couple of times over the years. Um, just a very, very nice, very sweet lady. You mentioned earlier that most of these interviews are, I, I get the sense that, that these these folks are calling you, that there's a reason they're calling you to, for promotion or 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 some sort of event. 
do you think that that makes them behave like, in other words, they're nice to you, either genuinely nice or, you know, some sort of, of curtain that they draw around themselves. Do they, there's their method to how they treat you. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I understand what you're saying. Of course they're, you know, they're going to be nice. I mean, with very few exceptions, um, uh, people, I mean, I, I think people are generally nice anyway, but let's say they have a, they have an agenda and the agenda is they want an article in the paper that says essentially what they want to say. And uh, usually what they wanted to say was, I'm coming to town, here's where you can buy the tickets, and here's how much they are, and come see me. You know, and they, and back then you're talking about a newspaper, you know, that had a circulation of uh, close to a quarter million every day. And so, you know, if, if, if let's say, you know, 10% of the people who read the paper read that story, 25,000 people. You can sell a few extra tickets. You make a few extra bucks. That's all. So, you know, I mean, I don't know that, that they were necessarily on their best behavior. And sometimes, you know, I mean, I can be provocative and, and, and annoying at times, too. And, uh, you know, but they, they generally sat through that okay. And, uh, you know, sometimes they come back at you. Did anyone ever hang up on you? Did you ever hang up on anybody? Um, did anybody ever hang up? I don't think so. I mean, you know, people would sometimes say, you know, they had to cut it off. Um, but I think, like the George Carlin interview, if you listen to that, I think about 10 minutes in, he says, he says, well, you know, the, the interview is basically over. I can't remember how he phrased it. And I said, well, you know, your publicist told me I was going to get 20 minutes. And it was only 10 at that point. And he said, okay. And he stayed on the phone. So um, I don't think I don't think anybody hung up on me, and I don't think I hung up on anybody. I mean, uh, you know, you know my my favorite stories about uh, Axl Rose and Phil Collins and all that. And you know, I did have Phil Collins call and yell at me over a review, um, but we also had a really nice conversation a few years later. So, and what was it about? these stories were in the initial podcast we did with Mark, which you can find on the leaders and legends podcast website. So Phil Collins, one of the biggest music stars in the world at the time, clearly was upset at a review that you wrote. Yeah. Genesis when they played the, uh, the Hoosier dome in 1992. And what did you write that so upset him? And, how much of, of a, uh, and we'll say this in a complimentary way, how much of an ego boost did you get that, you know, Phil called me because I made him mad? Um, <laughs> I don't know if it was an ego boost. It's just a great story, you know. I mean, it's just a story I love to tell because it's it's amazing to me. Like, I'm I, here's how I think of myself. Some guy <laughs> in Indianapolis. That's how I think of myself. I'm some guy who writes, you know, who was at that point writing for the newspaper in Indianapolis. I, it's not John Perellis at the New York Times. It's not Robert Christigau. It's not anybody who's important or known or anything like that. It's just me, some guy, you know. And the fact that they, you know, somebody like Phil Collins 
who I love, by the way. I mean, I don't love all his solo stuff, but I do, I mean, I've admired the guy, you know, basically as long as I've been listening to music. And he's an amazing drummer, and he's a really great singer, and he's very smart about music in a lot of ways. Genesis was a great band. Yes. I mean, Genesis was one of my favorite bands growing up. You know, and I was there. I mean, I watched, I went to two shows. They played two shows in New York uh, when he became the lead singer. And, you know, I was at both of them. I stayed for both. I love that band. Anyway, but he, um, you know, the idea that he would call, I just always find that mind-blowing. I mean, even that was, that was, you know, 1992. And 28 years later, I'm still amazed by it. But, you know, he called and he yelled. and Because the, the review was very negative. I mean, it was... But they just I, I think that in. was also another... Yes, that was that was generally what I was saying. I didn't think they had played nearly as hard or as well as they could have. And they were just there to collect the paycheck. And, you know, nobody wants to hear that. So, I mean, if you're the performer, you don't want to hear that. From, from somebody. And I think there's also, um, there was, there was a, an attitude of, it's Indianapolis, how hard do I have to play? <laughs> and I really believe that, that, you know, because this is a city, I mean, it's a very kind city. Um, and, you know, if you come here, people will give you a standing ovation, essentially. And that was something that I just, I, I, I've never understood. It's like, you know, if I'm going to give you my money to perform, I want to see a good performance. I don't need you to mail it in. And um, so that was, uh, you know, that was essentially it. And then he called and he yelled at me and I spoke back to him. And, uh, you know, the the end of the story was, and, uh, you know, he, we ended up having a nice conversation five years later when he was supposed to come back. Do you get the sense after the conversation that he realized what a huge fan you are and you had high expectations and they just weren't met? I think I think he understood that because, you know, when I said to him, look, I'm sorry you feel that way because I've been a Genesis fan, you know, all my life and I own virtually every record you've ever made, uh, most of which I bought with my own money. And, boy, you don't want to hear that. You know, you want to hear it's some critic who hates you. You don't want to hear that it's, uh, you know, a guy who loves you and thought that you put on a lousy show. Was there anyone who you were going to call or was going to call you who you just flat out just didn't want to talk to? Um, there were a lot. You know, I mean, I was I was around covering during the uh, the hair metal days. So there were a lot of, you know, bands like Warrant and um, Cinderella Poison. and stuff like that, Poison. Although I had a great conversation with Ricky Rocket, the drummer from Poison. He was really fun to talk to. Most of these guys, you know, I mean... I, I what made him fun? I, Sorry to interrupt. What made him fun? He just, he, he, he collected old horror movie um, memorabilia. And oh, so that's we great. had a, a really cool conversation about that. You know, not that I'm any expert on it, but it was, he was. And, and so it was fun to talk to him about that. And, you know, when you get these guys and they don't take themselves too, too seriously, um, it, it's always nice. 
And I actually, I like talking to anybody um, who does something professionally and does it well. Now, do I have to, I don't love what they do, but I can appreciate it because they've gotten to a certain level. And so they're, they're smart about it. You know, they, they know something. And so, and I also remember, I'm not writing for me, I'm writing for the readers. And the readers, um, you know, want to know something about these guys. So I try to find out something about them for, for the fans. I was writing for the readers of the newspaper, not for, you know, not for me and not for uh, the musician, really. And I hate to pick on hair metal because I'm a child of the 80s, not the 70s. But some of those bands, besides kind of just being Van Halen clones, especially their guitarists, um, they clearly rode the MTV wave and their good looks and, you know, kind of the same sounding songs to prominence and, and riches. And did some of them come off with the vibe of, yeah, I kind of know that I don't necessarily belong in the same uh, sentence with John Bonham or Charlie Watts or, you know, Ringo Starr or whomever. And I'm making a lot of money just by playing the same songs over and over again. So I don't really, I'm not here acting like I'm some sort of world famous classical musician. So let's just have fun with it because we both know what's going on. The one example of that that sticks out in my mind is, is I remember a conversation with Gene Simmons of Kiss, and I remember him describing their musical ability as average and their songwriting ability as average, and and you know they were one of the few people who he was one of the few people who admitted it, but he also you know he could afford to admit it. He had certainly <laughs> made enough money over the years that that you know wouldn't have hurt him at all. And I also remember, you know, one thing about it was they were coming through with one of those KISS conventions. Do you remember these things? Where Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, they would play acoustic, of all things, which is a weird thing for KISS. And then they would meet their fans. And, you know, there are two things about this. One, the tickets were $100. And that was at a time when a $100 ticket was an enormous amount of money. I mean, it was just almost outrageous to charge $100. And I remember saying to him, you know, what do you say to a fan who can't afford it? And he said, you can't come. <laughs> he said, you are, you know, this is for the super fans and, you know, whatever. And I don't remember the rest of his explanation. I was just always kind of blown away because Gene Simmons was, was pretty honest about things. Um, and, and you know, that, that always surprises you because you figure when somebody's confronted with the price tag, they're just going to give you some weaselly story. But he didn't do that. He just, he was blunt about it. The other thing I remember about those events was how happy their fans were and how much they loved them. Oh, yeah. And that's the thing that you, that, you know, I, I sometimes lost sight of, I have to admit. And I had, and I, I would, always try to remember that you know just because i don't love them somebody out there loves these bands you know somebody out there loves kiss loves whatever group it is and it's my uh, my job to you know to share an informed opinion but it's not my job to to trash their favorite band 
And so, you know, that it, it creates some some conflicts when you're trying to do the work that I did. But, you know, on the other hand, um, it's, ni- it's nice to remember things like that and, and think about them. And you just remember that music makes people happy. And that's the greatest thing. Exactly. Uh, you mentioned a few minutes ago about Phil Collins calling you after a bad review. And did anyone ever call you after a good review? Like, you know, hey, you really captured what we were trying to do there. You know, I know it's not your job to basically write our press releases, but at the same time, I appreciate the fact that you took the time to understand what we were trying to accomplish on stage. The, well, Paul Schaefer of Letterman's band, sure, he, he brought his band to um, Starlight Musical, the Hilton New Brown Theater that used to be at Butler. And they yeah. played there, and, and it was a very good show. And, you know, that's just a band of true professionals. And, um, you know, and I wrote a review saying so. And I missed this phone call, but he left a message saying essentially, thank you. And, and that was one of the rare ones. Um, I had uh, a message from uh, Jimmy Page and Robert Plant's publicist after they played at Market Square Arena saying thank you for the review. Um, but, you know, I, and I said, great, would they get on the phone with me? And they said no. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's Robert Plant and Jimmy so, Page. That's right. It's Robert Plant and Jimmy Page. You talk about people I would have loved to have talked to. Uh didn't happen. You know, so occasionally, occasionally you would get a, a nice note or, or something, but not very often. You know, I, I got as many angry phone calls or, you know, weird things happening to me, like the fish, you know, the fish incident. Um, Please tell and, us again. Uh, yes. Yeah, so fish came through and, and generally, you know, while I'm not a huge fan, I'm an admirer, I think those guys are amazing musicians and you know can do uh, extraordinary things playing in concert but they came to Deer Creek and they played this show that was just relentlessly awful I mean every song was the same kind of plotting mid-tempo just awful I mean it was just a terrible concert and um, probably the worst concert I saw at Deer Creek in those eight years and um so I wrote a review saying, um, in the words of, you know, to borrow a phrase from Judge Judy, um, don't, you know, don't pee on my leg and tell me it's raining. That's what Judge Judy used to say. I'd say fish peed in their fans' ears, and the fans, in turn, would have tape recorders running to capture the moment. As in, you know, the fans are unaware I think they're just so happy to be in the presence of fish that they were unaware just how awful this was. And that, (laughs) this was, I think it was 1997, if I remember correctly. And, you know, there's really no internet at that time. And so that review got passed around among fish fans. And for about a year, I would get a letter every so often from an angry fish fan over that review. And, even now, um, uh, that phrase about pee on your leg and tell me it's raining, people have, at the last Fish show, or it wasn't Fish, it was uh, Trey Anastasio, the guitarist, In uh, when he came to Indianapolis, somebody handed him a leg, as in like a prosthetic leg, <laughs> as if to say, 
okay, you know, here, pee on my leg, go ahead. <laughs> so it's very weird. And there's a, there's a movie, there's a documentary about fish called Bittersweet Motel. And, and uh, Trey discusses, discusses my review in that, uh, in that movie. You stand by it to this day? Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, it doesn't make me any less of an admirer. Just uh, they, and actually, this made me more of an admirer because Trey says, he says, well, you know, he's right in a sense because if you're going to experiment on stage, sometimes you're going to fail. And I thought, wow, somebody who actually took responsibility for what they did, that's so rare. So um, if, if I was an admirer then, I'm even more of an admirer now. Did it get easier to interview people? I'm going to specifically ask you about someone I'm guessing you talked to many, many, many times. Did it get easier when there started to get some familiarity and you're like, you know, hey, this is what the fourth or fifth time we've spoken and the person I'm going to mention specifically in one of your interviews with him is on your site, thetapesarchive.com. We're talking to Mark Allen, thetapesarchive.com. And that is John Mellencamp. John and I had a really contentious relationship for a while. And he... Um, what made it not contentious? Not a bad relationship. We were, he, he didn't like me. <laughs> Because if it, because if I thought he did something poorly, I would say so, and I don't think he was used to it. And one time, he sat me down and he said, "I go on tour and I do seventy or eighty shows, and I get two or three negative reviews, and one of them's always from you." And <laughs> that wasn't true, but John could if you criticized something in one of John's shows. You could give it a four-star review and just say, this was a moment that wasn't quite perfect. John would remember that moment. There was a show that they did in Chicago that I went to. It was, um, I can't remember. There was, it was a benefit, and I, I don't remember what the benefit was for. But at any rate, John, uh, it, it, was, it was when Wild Night was a hit for John. And on the record, Michelle and Degiocello played the bass part, but in right. the on the on the uh, in the concert, it was Toby Myers, his regular bass player, and Toby hadn't played it much, and Toby did not have it down as much as I mean, as good a bass player as Toby is, that that's a hard bass line, I think, and 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 Toby didn't have it quite perfect, and I mentioned that in the, in what was otherwise a stellar review, and that's what John. You know, John grasped onto that, and he remembered that, and that was part of this um, very long dialogue that we had together. We sat in a studio for about ninety minutes and talked, and um, but it was. But I I really like talking to John. First of all, you, you won't find a more honest guy. I mean, I don't know if that's that's always to his benefit, but. You know, he says what he thinks, and if you don't like it, tough. And I really right. appreciate that. He's right you about know? the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. He's been critical of that from from the day it was launched. Yeah, and and he <laughs> and you know the comment that he made to me ended up 
keeping him out of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for several years till he finally got in. Um, Didn't he tell John him, uh, let him know? Yeah, did he tell him to go to hell or he can f himself or something like that? Yeah. It was pretty blunt. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, and Jan Wenner read that, and Jan Wenner was not happy. So, um, so that kept John out of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But at any rate, John and I—I I mean, so you know, I think John wanted more glowing coverage from his hometown paper. Exactly. And, you know, that's been, and people who got used to me know that glowing coverage is probably not something that I gave a ton of. And when you got it, you really earned it. And I always thought John's live shows were excellent. I mean, you know, he said that about you always give me negative reviews. And I, I definitely gave some of the records negative reviews, but I don't remember ever seeing one of his shows where I thought this was not a great show. Anyway, the, I've seen the, him the about a half dozen story. times, and every time I saw him, it was he's terrific. I mean, he's a Hoosier icon, so he comes back to Indiana or Indianapolis, and people are obviously going crazy. It's, I guess it's reasonable if I was in Mellencamp's camp to think that uh, you know a Hoosier, uh, by location at least, would, would say nice things about him all the time. But if you don't and it's not just musicians, it's politicians, it's everybody. If you're not a hundred percent positive, then they, they find the one thing. Yeah. I mean, that, that absolutely happens. And and I mean, I think John, and I could be totally wrong about this, but I think John respected it. I think John grew to appreciate it. And, and cause I remember saying to him one time, you know, I said, he asked me my opinion of something and I told him, and he, and you know he was surprised by how blunt I was, which would come as no surprise to anybody who knows me. But John, uh, he and I just said to him, I said Timothy White wouldn't tell you that. And Timothy White was this writer from Billboard who was very much in John's camp and um, would write wonderful things about John. And um, you know, and that was the thing. Like, I mean, I like John, and I. <laughs> Um, but you know, I, I, my allegiance was always to the reader. I want to give them the best, most honest, uh, criticism that I can give. Looking at some of the names and we're talking to Mark Allen, looking at his website, thetapesarchive.com, where he has posted his, some of his interviews with more to come with, uh, famous celebrities and musicians. One name that I'm, I keep staring at for obvious reasons, and not only because it's chronologically the first uh, interview you did, is 1981, Alex Van Halen. Yeah. What was it like to talk to him? What was the circumstances of that? Because, you know, the Van Halens are pretty stingy with their interviews, and I'm guessing that yeah, was that for was, the Fair Warning album. That was backstage at Boston Garden in uh, July, I think, of 1981. And I was, you know, 22 years old at the time and uh, uh, a young rock journalist and just a freelancer. I mean, I wrote for a lot of little publications. You know, there must have been a dozen music magazines or more in Boston at that time. And um, I don't remember, you know, how it happened or who I was even writing for at that time um, or who ended up with the article. But um so they just said, you know, you want to talk to Van Halen? And I have to tell you, again, 
not a huge fan at the time. And so, uh, but I said, sure, because I like, I, you know, I'm happy to talk to pretty much anybody. Um, I think if they have merit and they have fans, then fans want to know about them. So I'm glad to talk to them. Anyway, you're I went fan back of, you're a fan of Alex. Eddie more than the band. I'm sorry, Mark. You're a fan of yeah. Eddie's playing, not necessarily the band. Yeah, I would say I'd say that that's true. You know, I mean, David Lee Roth was not well thought of. Uh, I think when that when the band first came out, and I certainly was not an admirer. I mean, I really I do like him more now, um, but back then not so much. And and Van Halen was almost. I mean, it's funny to think of them as metal because they're not metal, but they were kind of thought of as metal. And so, you know, that was a genre that I didn't have a lot to do with. I wasn't a huge metal guy at that point. Um, not that I'm huge now, but I was, uh, you know, I can appreciate it more now. So, uh, you know, like somebody commented on that interview and said, you know, oh, you were so lucky to be in the presence of a rock deity. And I thought that wasn't the way I saw it at all. I just was going to do an interview with somebody. And I, the one part of that interview that I remember, and I'm not sure if it's on the on the interview or not, is Alex said, what do you think of us? I mean, he just generally, you know, what do you think of the band? And I said, I remember saying, I'm not a, a huge fan of what you do, but I think you do it really well. And he said, fair enough. And I remember walking around Boston Garden with him, and he showed me his drum set and all that. Right. And it was a really fun conversation. I mean, he's a very loose, uh, or he was a very loose guy. I don't know what he's like now, but um, back then he was just, you know, these were guys in their 20s, and they were having fun. And um, and I enjoyed uh, that experience, but, you know, it's an experience I can enjoy more now thinking back on it, then it was just, you know, another interview. Another name that pops out as I'm staring at it, because I'm pretty sure you're a big fan of this band, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but John Entwistle, the bassist for The Who. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Who's one of my all-time favorite bands, and uh, it was great to talk to him, and he's got a real good sense of humor, which I didn't know because, you know, you didn't see that many interviews with him. It was always Pete or Roger. And to to be able to talk to him and, you know, find out a little bit more about how he became a bass player and why the bass and um, and all that. And, and, and he's just funny, like sneakily funny in the same way that he's uh, just an extraordinary musician. You know, and I don't think people necessarily recognize it. But, you know, to me, I think he's the greatest bass player of all. I mean, maybe rock, I should say, greatest rock bass player. And, um, you know, so, so having a chance to talk to him and, and learn a little bit more, that was, that was fun. Is it difficult not to, you mentioned uh, Frank Zappa earlier, is it difficult not to fall into fandom and, and, uh, and keep the journalistic, you know, I hate to say platform and speak from that platform and ask questions based on that 
as opposed to saying, you know, well, when I saw you at the Nassau Coliseum in 1972 <laughs> kind of stuff. Um, I, I probably, you know, that's an interesting, I have never, I have never really thought about it. I, I, I think the, you know, probably the best thing or the most evident thing is if I know something, if I know a lot about a band or a musician, I think it comes through. And so I think that they appreciate that. Now, do, did I ever, oh, you know, I probably lapsed into fandom very occasionally, but I don't think so. But, you know, it's just, if you listen to these, I mean, there are people I clearly know more about and am more passionate about than others. I mean, Ian Anderson from Jethro Tull. Jethro Tull was my favorite group growing up, and I knew everything about Jethro Tull. Um, and so, you know, my my questions are probably better for him than they were for, well, certainly for Alex Van Halen or Tom Morello, who I who I like and enjoy, but I... You know, I certainly didn't know nearly as much about them, but um, hopefully, hopefully they're not, you know, terribly gushy, you know, Chris Farley show type. (laughs) Well, you know, one of the things that you, that seems to be a common thread is when a younger generation of musicians encounters either because they're touring together or because they just become friends that the younger generation will bring up songs or concerts or shows or events to the older generation. And the older generation will just kind of scratch their head. Like, I don't, I don't remember that at all. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld talks about it when people ask him about the show and they'll ask him about the most minute detail. And he'll be like, man, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. I don't remember that. When you were talking well, to these musicians, like- go ahead. I was going to tell you, I had a moment like that actually with Jason Alexander from Seinfeld where I met him and I, and he had just hit a show um, that was just coming out called Bob Patterson. And this was yeah. when I was a TV critic. And I said to him, you know, there are five examples of things that were, that have a Seinfeld related uh, tag to them in the, in the first episode of this show. And, you know, I said, there are, there's dialogue, there's actors and all that. And he's just looking at me going, what are you talking about? And so I just went <laughs> through them for him and he had no idea, you know, and, and a lot of, a lot of people, you know, I mean, you can understand why uh, some of them just have no recollection of it. Or I remember Dennis Hopper, I interviewed him once and he said, I was just asking him, you know, what's the best thing you've ever gotten to say in a movie? And he said, I don't know. He said, oh, once once uh, they yell cut, you know, and that's a wrap, I, I've forgotten the dialogue. So, you know, the really? things that matter to us, yeah, the, and isn't that surprising? And the things that matter to us as fans don't necessarily matter to, to the performers. And Alex, Jason Alexander, who we all know as George Costanza, is kind of the historian of the show if you watch the clips of him on youtube uh, where he's talking about the show specifically he can remember some pretty interesting details and so you're jogging his memory 
and and he's not coming up with it. And, and did that happen with a let's say a John S. Whistle or Frank Zappa or Ace Freely or whomever? Where you say, hey, do you remember that one show or do you remember that one article? And they're like, man, I'm you got me. I can't think of an example of that. I'm sure it happened, but I can't, I can't really think of a specific. And when you, so let's reverse it. When they talked to you, did they bring up things or, or answer questions in a way that you said, man, I didn't know that. Oh, all the time, all the time. You know, you just, uh, I, I think, wow, is probably <laughs> the word I use more than any. Cause I just, you know, there's always something where, where they're explaining something to me and, and I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. Or, you know, wow, that is a phenomenal point that I, you know, I had totally missed or had misconstrued or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, these interviews, that's another fun part of them is they're always illuminating. You know, I'm always I was always finding out something that I didn't know and that, uh, you know, that made me uh, more interested in the let me do one more promo and then we'll spend the next 10 minutes and then we'll wrap up i should do my promo so let me just say you're listening to leaders and legends a podcast presented by cramerica krugel industrial smoothing uh who else pendant publishing who else can i name mark uh let me think let me think i think um the human fund made to order (laughs) jiffy park the lumbar yard You're listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. I'm your host, Robert Vane, and we're with Mark Allen, a former Indianapolis star, a music and entertainment critic, who has a new podcast called thetapesarchive.com, and it features interviews with musicians and celebrities whom Mark has encountered over his several years in journalism. Uh, thank you very much, Mark. Mark is just back from New Zealand, and uh is very gracious to sit down and talk to us again. And in the future, when we re-interview uh, author and PhD Greg Renoff for his biography of famed music producer Ted Templeman, Mark's going to join us for the interview so that we can have an actual uh, music and industry historian and expert ask the really good questions of Greg instead of me just asking Van Halen question after Van Halen question. <laughs> Thank you, Mark, very much for coming on. I'm a couple more questions and then we'll let you go. So you can go back to your sure. uh, lovely wife, Martha, who uh, I believe uh, Mark and Martha's first date was a Pink Floyd concert in New York City. That's right. Uh, yep. In 1980, February 28th, 1980, we went to see the wall, took her to see the wall. Uh, and, and it was all downhill she... from there because I mean, <laughs> how do you get a better date than that? And I'd say this, I've gone to several concerts with Mark, and if you ever get that opportunity, you should definitely uh, take him up on it. He and my brother and Kevin Finch, who some of you know, 
Uh, we went to a few concerts together and it's fun to sit down and have dinner with him beforehand because he knows so much about the band you're going to see and, and their music. And I'm very grateful your, for your friendship, Mark. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, right back at you. If you could interview anyone and ask about their songs or their background, whom you haven't interviewed, give us a couple of names, please. Well, Bob Dylan, for starters. I mean, he doesn't really talk to anybody, but uh, I would love to talk to him. I'd love to talk to Neil Young. Um, I did talk to him once for a minute, but that was about it. Why only Um, a minute? um, He was doing a press conference for Farm Aid, and so I got to ask, I mean, I got to ask him essentially one question, and it was a question that I wanted to know the answer to. It wasn't anything for uh, um, for publication. But um, if you remember, they used to have concerts at the Tennis Center down, uh, down by oh, yeah. IPY, right? Mm-hmm. So he played there, and he played there with the, his country band, the Shocking Pinks. And they did a song, this 17-minute song called Ordinary People. And I just was absolutely mesmerized by it. And it never appeared on an album uh, at that point. And I just, that's what I wanted to know. When when will we get a recording of that song? And it did come out, um, oh, it's a while now, but it's, it's, um, but that song finally came out. So that's what I wanted to know. It was a completely selfish question. You know, that was it. But yeah, I mean, Bob Dylan and Neil Young are probably two of them. And and, and Page and Plant, I would have loved to have had a moment to talk to them. I mean, I've seen Robert Plant on talk shows, and he's a really good guest. So um, he would be fun. I think Roger Waters would be really interesting to talk to as well from Pink Floyd. So those are probably four people I'd, I'd love to talk to. And you know who's, I hate to say this because I'm such a fan, who appears based on when I've seen it, um, videos of it or whatever, who's just a, an awful interview because he's so incredibly undisciplined. And that's David Lee Roth. It's like he, it's like he doesn't even answer the question. How could you handle someone, forget that it's him, but just anyone like that who you're trying to have a conversation with, a meaningful conversation that you're going to translate for your and transcribe for your readers how do you handle that? Um, there are guys who completely go off the rails. And actually, Sammy Hagar is is also somebody sort of like that, where you could ask Sammy a question, put down the phone, go get a pizza, come back, <laughs> and he's still answering the question. Um, a delight, you know, he was really fun. But you've got to be able to, you know, you want you're going to navigate a very long and winding road to get to the point. Um, when, you know, I guess if I had an interview subject like that, and didn't have too many of them, but if if I did, you know, I just tried to steer them to the to the point, you know, or or would interrupt or something like that. My my favorite story, and this is a guy I don't think you heard of it was a guy named herman brood ever hear of him unless he's related to the hermits no 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 so herman brood was this i think he was i think he was from holland and um he came along in the 70s and he had a a couple of very minor radio hits 
But he came through Boston, and um, uh, I was writing for this this um, publication, this uh, this you know just small music magazine, and so I went to the hotel to interview him, and this is one of the most bizarre evenings I've ever spent because when I got there, I got to his hotel, and he had posted a picture of himself on the the hotel door. Okay, so his hotel room has a picture of him. And the door is slightly open. So I knock on the door, and nobody answers. And so I kind of push the door in, and Herman is behind the door. And he's kind of hiding. And I'm thinking, this is really weird. Anyway, if we sit down, and I turn on the tape recorder, and I say, you know, I want to ask you about, and I didn't even get the question out, and he started talking. And he talked for 90 minutes. And I kept I kept trying to interrupt him. And 90 minutes I, and straight? I, yeah, 90 minutes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I tried to get him to, you know, on track or to just interrupt him, to ask him something. And and finally, I said to him, you don't need me here, do you? And he said, I could easily do this interview without you. <laughs> <laughs> and this was this guy was such a character. I mean, he claimed that he had, uh, he had done heroin 10,000 times. And he was just, I mean, he was all over the map on everything. But he was, a, he was an interesting character. Uh, Musician. I mean, I like the records, the, the two records he made that I heard. I think he made others, but I, I only remember hearing two of them. And, uh, and that was just, you know, one of the more bizarre uh, situations I was ever in. A lot of the interviews, I mean, uh, the overwhelming number of them were done on the phone. But, you know, that one, especially when I was a kid and I was in Boston doing this, um, most of the interviews were in person. So... Were the scary. were the stones just too big for you to, or McCartney? I, have, I mean, I'm trying to think of some of these gigantic names. You know, you mentioned uh, Page and Plant, but some of these other, maybe um, even Garth Brooks in a in a different kind of musical genre, where they're just like, we, we don't we don't need to talk to you, so we're not talking to you. Garth Brooks did a press conference uh, once when I covered him, and and he was always pretty gracious about spending time with the media, but in a collective group, not in a an individual um, situation. You know, you weren't getting him on the phone. At least, I mean, I'm sure if you were at the New York Times or the LA Times or something or the Washington Post, you're getting him on the phone. But in Indianapolis, that wasn't going to happen. Um, you mentioned uh, the Beatles. Um, McCartney, I, it's, when he came through here, um, he did press conferences again, just like Garth Brooks did. Ringo would give you five minutes, so you you got on the phone and you had five minutes, and that was it. So I have an interview like that, and you know, my, I mentioned my my partner in this venture, Alan Barry, who does all the work on the podcast to get it up and running. Um, uh, Alan, I, you know, I've been trying to say we should run the Ringo interview, and he's like, but it's five minutes. And so we'll we'll figure out how to get it on there at some point. But so I have talked to Ringo. Um, I've talked to Charlie Watts a couple of times, and uh, Bill Wyman of the Stones. 
And actually, um, Daryl Jones, the bass player, I interviewed the first week when he started playing with the Stones oh, after Bill Wyman left Adam. the group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that was kind of fun, you know, I mean, because the first, uh, basically, I talked to him after the first show that he ever did with the Stones. And, mm. you know, that's kind of fun to, to hear about. Hopefully, that'll, you know, make it onto the podcast at some point. Um uh, yeah, so, you know, I mean, some of these people are just, you know, they're they're just too big. They don't do interviews, or they do interviews with, you know, Rolling Stone or the New York Times, and that's about it. Yeah, two more questions, and we'll wrap up the podcast. And I've been watching a lot of these lately, and, and I'm a huge fan. I mean, times have changed, you know, as you alluded to earlier in the podcast, and what you, how someone acted in the 90s isn't how they act today, or what they say in the 90s. I am a huge fan of Howard Stern as an interviewer. Mm-hmm. He gets his inter- one of his, his interview with uh, Paul McCartney is absolutely terrific. I mean, he gets the yep. A-list people on his show. He has, I mean, he just flat out asked McCartney, you know, who broke up the Beatles and McCartney said John Lennon did. And so he kind of asked the questions that, that me as a listener or viewer want, want to ask, want to hear answered. Who are some of your favorite rock or or uh, music interviewers? Interviewers. Hmm. Um, well, Howard Stern is a great interviewer. Um, you know, I, I think he would be an even better interviewer if he would listen a little bit more. You know, I think he interrupts quite a bit, and uh, he could get even more out of people. Um, but, you know, that said, uh, the guy's just phenomenal. And I think Mark Marin does a great job. I love uh, his podcast, you know, WTF. Um, I think he's uh, he's terrific at getting information out of people. And and people, you know, the thing is, people go on on both of those shows and they know what they're getting into. Mm-hmm. You know, when they call a guy in Indianapolis, they don't know what they're getting into. You know, they're they're. I think they're expecting. You know, somebody who's going to ask um, baseline questions and simple things and stuff. And so I, I think if I ask the questions that um, that that Howard Stern or or um, Mark Marin ask, I wouldn't get the answers that they get because I don't think people are going to be as revealing to a guy in Indianapolis as they are to national audiences when they know millions of people are listening now you know because I, I can remember i mean i interviewed yoko ono and asked her about about uh, breaking up the beatles and you know I, I, I wish i could remember exactly what she said but basically you know i mean uh, it was a little bit of a denial it was a little bit of you know kind of all over the map sort of thing and and you, uh, now yoko's obviously <laughs> not paul but <laughs> um, you don't get necessarily the same, you won't get the same response or the same kind of response, you know, being me versus being, you know, two really well-known interviewers. Eddie Trunk is another example. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that one. Eddie Trunk, who does the, a lot of rock, he's more of a heavy metal, but he gets terrific guests on there and, you know, a lot of his questions are about new music. Quit playing your old stuff. I want to hear something new. But he's able to get the people on and and 
the last question you know, I have for you wants, because he wants people he wants he wants new music, but a lot of people, a lot of fans don't want new music. You know, they want the hits. And, yeah, that's a fair point. Uh, the last question anyway, I wanted to ask you because I was I was wondering if you mentioned press conferences where everyone's shouting questions and you get to hear everything that everybody's asking and hear all the answers. But for all these interviews with people like John Entwistle and Alex Van Halen and Izzy Stradlin and John Mellencamp and Joan Rivers and George Carlin, all the ones that are on your website, did you ever get any help from a fellow music critic or interviewer who says, Hey, ask him about this. Or, you know, Hey Mark, did you know about this? I know you're getting ready to talk to Mellencamp. Ask him about this. Oh, probably. I mean, uh, I'm sure that, that I had people um, making suggestions or fans sometime. Um, you know, when I was doing the job, the, there was not a lot of internet and there wasn't really much email either, but email started coming in later in the pro, late in the process, probably 97 or so. And so I would get emails from fans sometimes who wanted, you know, a question asked or something like that. But, you know, I mean, I, what I was tr- always trying to do was to, to gather information, um, to be able to tell a good story about the artist and what the artist was up to and what the fans might be interested in. And that was, that was really my goal. Um, I, you know, there is the, if you go on YouTube and you read the comments on, on these interviews, um, you know, the overwhelming majority of them are really nice, but some of them are saying like, you know, what a stupid interview, you know, why didn't he ask about X, Y, and Z? And it's like, you have to understand, you know, who am I? I? I'm doing these as a newspaper writer, writing for a general audience, and I'm just trying to get a good story. And I can't spend, you know, 20 minutes asking about the drum solo or how you got the sound on <laughs> such and such a, a song. You know, I mean, I have to get my story. And a lot of these interviews, not all of them, but a lot of them were timed. So, you know, I had 15 minutes or 20 minutes or, you know, sometimes I was lucky and, and got a half hour with somebody. Um, but, you know, generally I was just trying to give people, you know, get the best information I could in the time I had. You retired from doing this several years ago, but since the time you retired and, and stopped interviewing uh, people like this, musicians and celebrities, is there anyone you would like to have interviewed? You mean uh, just anybody in the world? Anyone since we can make it anyone in the world or we can make it someone kind of in this genre, but you've stopped interviewing people. But if they say, Mark Allen, come out of retirement for this one 30 minute interview and you get to choose anyone, whom would you choose? Well, I, I have two answers to that. One of them is Michael Richards. I always wanted to talk to Michael Richards. And I, I've talked to him briefly, but uh, because this is a this is a guy who is to me is fascinating. You know, Kramer. Here he is. He's on the biggest one of the biggest television shows of all time, and then he didn't really work for about. Well, then he went back to work. Sorry, he went back to work fairly quickly with a show that got canceled after about five episodes, and then he didn't work for about six years, and. I'm just so interested. He's, there's something 
he became Kramer. That. Yeah, <laughs> but he was. I mean, and until he had his uh, his moment of infamy on that comedy club stage, mm. he you know he really was not out there in the public at all. And I'm just when I when I met him, I I said to him, you know, why did you do this show? You know, why it was it was I think it was called the Michael Richards Show, right? Was yeah, he was a detective, right as I recall. Film. Yes, and and I said, why did you do this? You don't have to work ever again, right? And he said, yeah, financially I don't have to work, but you're an actor. That's what you do. That's what you know. That's that's why I'm doing this. I love to be an actor. You know, it's not about the money. It's nice to have the money, but it's not about the money. And and I just thought, oh man, that's a guy I'd love to spend time with because there's something going on in that brain that I really like to to, to know more about. Well, his whole life is a fantasy who, camp. <laughs> the other Go on person with I'd your really second like one, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no. The other person I'd like to interview again is Izzy Stradlin because, you know, a lot of, if you listen to that interview that's on the website, um, you'll hear me asking him, telling him that I would love to when he's when he's back off tour, I would love to come up to Lafayette and um, drive around with him and have him talk about uh, the places that he used to hang out and the memories that he has of Lafayette. And I asked him about that, and and you know he said, well, you know, let's see if we can arrange it, and it never got arranged for whatever reason. I don't really remember what happened, but um, I you know I'd love to know what 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 happened because really, I mean, he's been out of the public eye for probably what, 20 years or more. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, you wonder how did that happen and why did that happen? And, you know, because I thought that the interview that I did with him um, was when his first solo record came out with the Juju Hounds, which I just think is a masterpiece. I, I love that record. It's such a great rock and roll record. And, um, you know, I'd love to know what, what what is how do you sustain yourself and you know what are you doing and fans want to know that too and so that's sort of why I'm interested in that. So those are well, if anyone is right in- now. No, if anyone is interested, uh, Mark Allen, our guest on the Leaders and Legends podcast for this episode, has a new website. It's called thetapesarchive.com, and it contains his interviews with. Celebrities and musicians such as John Mellencamp, Ace Freely, Joan Rivers, Alex Van Halen, and many, many, many more. And I've listened to some of them. They're terrific. Mark's love of music and knowledge of the music industry and music culture really come through. Mark, thank you so very much for coming on the podcast today. My pleasure, Robert. Thanks for having me. And uh, hopefully I will see you in person uh at some point in life. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.